When Yvonne Pryor saw the newspaper headlines the morning of April 1st, 1975, her entire universe was rocked. Little did she know that the investigation of the abduction and murder of her daughter, 16-year-old Sharon Pryor, would go on for 48 years before it would finally be solved thanks to genealogical DNA testing. Join us for this episode of the Weird and Wicked podcast in which we'll explain why her killer went undetected for nearly half a century. Hey dudes, welcome to the Weird and Wicked podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Rachel. And we're two sisters with a passion for the mysterious and the unknown. As you might already know, on our podcast, we explore killer cases and the most puzzling phenomena. Come with us down the rabbit hole where we will take a magnifying glass to the most bizarre, unnerving, and unbelievable stories. From true crime and conspiracy theories to ghosts and cryptids, we cover it all. Today, we're talking about a case from 1975 that was actually just solved earlier this month. This is the case of Sharon Pryor. This episode contains topics such as rape and violent murder. It is strictly intended for mature audiences only. This story is recounted from a number of sources that are listed in our show notes. Our discussion on this podcast is based solely on our own research and conclusions. Listener discretion is advised. This case popped up on my feed. I think it was on Reddit. I noticed it. Um, But... It was literally just solved on May 2nd, I think, I want to say. That could be wrong about that. amazing. But it's a case from 1975, like we mentioned already, and it took 48 years to solve it, which is insane. I couldn't imagine waiting that long. I I thought it was really interesting because of the genealogical DNA testing. Like, Mm -hmm. it still blows my mind how helpful that has been in solving so many cold cases like the last couple of years oh my god yeah and it is blowing up and I Mm -hmm. I love it the fact that we're at a point now where we can take even DNA from that long ago and still find the perpetrator and Mm -hmm. link them and run it through the system again yeah it's crazy to me it's amazing I hope you guys enjoy the story as much as We do. On the morning of April 1st, 1975, Montreal resident Yvonne Pryor was up early, awaiting any news on the case of her missing 16-year-old daughter, Sharon. She was a single mom of four children who absolutely loved and cherished her children. So as you can imagine, when her eldest daughter, Sharon, went missing three days prior, Yvonne was worried for her. This morning, she noticed something a bit peculiar. Her neighbor Ronnie, an acquaintance of hers, was knocking on her other neighbor's door with a newspaper under his arm. She could tell immediately that something about him was off. Yvonne went outside and called to him, asking him why he was out so early this morning. Ronnie neglected to give her a straight answer and instead replied with nothing. But Yvonne could see there was a strange worried look in his eyes. As she began to walk over to him, he turned and met her halfway. Not a word was spoken between them, but something told Yvonne she needed to see that newspaper. 
In a swift motion, she snatched it from him and ran back toward her home while unfolding the pages. Ronnie called out to her and tried to tell her not to look at it, but it was too late. What Yvonne saw on the pages shook her entire world. Police had found Sharon badly beaten, deceased, and laying half-naked in a snowy field some 25 minutes away from home, and the press had printed a graphic photo of her right there on the page. It honestly gives me chills. I know. Thinking about finding out that way. This is all true. Like, she, her mother did not find out about this until she saw that newspaper. And the fact no that police a- tried to contact her. No investigators, oh. like, notified her. Just the fact that there is a graphic photo of her own mm-hmm. daughter right, right there on the front page for everyone right. to see and then that's the way that she mm-hmm. freaking found out about it and we'll it's go literally... into it even more but it was extremely graphic like her her body was was in the worst condition when oh, it was found it's horrible Sharon's body was discovered in a field in Longueuil, Montreal, which had been used as an apiary by a local beekeeper who lived not too far from the area. The beekeeper had become aware that the gate to his apiary had been left open. He swore that he had padlocked it shut the last time he was there, as he always does. But around 9 o'clock that evening, when he went to check, the lock was unlocked and seemingly untampered with, Hanging on, hanging on the gate just as if he had forgotten to lock it back up. It was when he went inside to survey the area that he unfortunately stumbled upon the teen's partially nude body and immediately phoned the police. Oh my gosh, I can't imagine like discovering. Oh my god, something like that. That'd be harrowing. Yeah, in your I would own probably scream and oh my god, yeah. <laughs> And then get a phone immediately. In your own establishment, like, Mm -hmm. oh, my God. Then there's the whole other other layer of now you're a suspect immediately. Right, yeah. I think we go into it more later on, too. But I guess the field, he used the field as an apiary. I'm just, I don't know how it actually looked. There's not really any pictures of the, the, where the bees were kept or whatever, but... Mm. I'm just imagining, like, those bee boxes that yeah. are, like, kind of stacked up. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess he only used that field for a certain amount of time during the year because the oh. bees only are, need to be tended yeah. to every now and then, yeah. Exactly. So I don't think he was going to come back to the field until, like, later that spring, I think is oh. what I read. Okay. So it just so happened, I think somebody had told him that – they like saw his gate open so mm. that's why he, that's he why went he went checked out. It out but if nobody <sighs> told him that or if the gate was closed he probably Could wouldn't you have imagine ever. yeah i wonder how long it, it would have been. been weeks i think police arrived at the scene and began scoping out the area to gather evidence and any clues as to what could have happened to the girl there were a ton of details about the body and her surrounding and the surrounding area that made it quite obvious to them that this was an assault and murder. Her body had been badly beaten. Her chest had been crushed as if someone had knelt on it. She had bruises all over her face and head, 
some consistent with an object such as a ring. She had fractures on both sides of her jaw and a broken nose. There was even a hole in her cheek caused by one of her teeth coming loose in the midst of the attack. She was nude from the waist down except for her socks and shoes, and she was wearing a blue sweater and suede jacket, which her mother had let her borrow the night she had gone missing. Oh, that just breaks my heart. I know, right? It's so sad. Yeah. Her jeans were found nearby in the snow, and her underwear was hanging by a tree branch. Investigators found partially chewed tape stuck in her tangled hair, likely used to gag her. There were also tree branches clutched in her hand, indicating to police that she had probably been clinging to life when her attacker attacker left her in the snow. There were even signs that she had made an attempt to pick herself up, as her legs were bent in a way that seemed like she tried but failed. Just the pure, the sheer amount of details that were recorded oh God. about this case. Mm-hmm. It's just like mind boggling that somebody was, is capable of this kind of a thing. Yeah, it's like, absolutely like they disgusting. Exactly. They obviously raped her and for whatever ungodly reason, they decided to just leave her in the snow pretty much after she had fatal injuries oh my god yeah and the fact that she was clinging to tree branches and they were like i guess the police were like that just shows that she was trying fighting so hard to stay alive but Mm -hmm. out in the snow in the cold oh my god and after internally bleeding and beaten up so badly it's just If you're not found by anybody, then it's too late for you. Mm -hmm. It's just really sad. It's horrible. The coroner reported that her time of death was about 20 hours before she was found, meaning she had been abandoned in the snow around midnight or 1 a.m. the night before and held captive before then. Other evidence found at the scene included tire tracks approximately 15 feet away from her body and a blood trail from where the car was parked to her body. However, there were no drag marks in the snow and no mud on Sharon's shoes, which meant she was carried from the car. There was a men's shirt size 17 collar with 34-inch sleeves, indicating the man who did this to her had to have been around six feet tall. And due to the size and depths and depth of the shoe prints nearby, he was a size eight and a half shoe and probably weighed around 200 pounds. Additionally, a ring with the word love inscribed, a page out of an English magazine, a car seat cushion, and a receipt for a jacket with the name Sharon Pryor was all found in the area. The next morning after Yvonne learned of her daughter's fate, She was asked to come down to identify and confirm that the body was indeed Sharon Pryor. Except having been so heartbroken over the news, she could not bring herself to go in. Instead, she sent her brother in place, who then confirmed to police and to Yvonne that it was, in fact, Sharon's body. It's just heartbreaking. I couldn't do that either if I were her. Yeah. Especially with the way she found out. Yeah. 
it was it would be like so sudden and she was she was hoping to find her daughter for days Mm -hmm. because she went missing I think three days before it's that hope that you hold on so tightly to and you have so Mm -hmm. much of it like so many times you hear of parents believing like I know that they're still alive I know that Mm -hmm. we're gonna go and find them to have that hope just completely shattered not even by a police officer telling you you're literally staring at the at the morning newspaper Mm -hmm. the picture of her I can't imagine how Yvonne must have felt in that moment and then being asked to go in and identify her I know that that has to be done but Oh yeah. my gosh. It's just traumatizing. Mm-hmm. Something you would never, ever, ever be able to get over. No. Let's go back in time a bit so that we can learn a little bit more about the Pryor family. Sharon Pryor was born on February 9th, 1959, in Montreal, Canada, to parents Yvonne and George. Her mother, Yvonne, had immigrated to Montreal from England. It was in Montreal that she met her future husband, George, who was a member of the Canadian military. The two fell in love, got married, and had their first child together, Sharon. Later on, the couple welcomed twin girls, Maureen and Doreen. These two girls were almost like a birthday present to little Sharon. She was so excited and happy to be a big sister. In 1962, George was transferred to Manitoba where the couple welcomed their fourth child, George Jr. By 1965, however, their marriage was failing. The two parted ways, and Yvonne took all four kids with her and moved back to Montreal, in a neighborhood nicknamed The Point. It was there that she would continue to raise her four children as a single mother. That has to be hard, oh my gosh. Oh yeah, definitely. Having four four kids, kids. Two of them being twins. Mm Mm-hmm. It's a it's lot to handle insane. as a single mother. Yeah. And they're all still so young, too. Mm-hmm. From a very young age, Sharon could be described as having so many good qualities. She was well-liked, caring, and responsible. She had a love for animals and would even take wounded ones in, nursing them back to health. She dreamed of one day becoming a veterinarian. Sharon was a shy girl, but had a warm presence about her, got along, with we- got along well with others, and had a great friend group. She was a member of the Boys and Girls Club and played floor hockey and participated in arts and crafts classes. She was generally a well-behaved girl and stayed out of trouble. When she was 16, Sharon was dating a young man named John. She loved music, especially Elton John, and loved spending time with friends. She was always home at a decent time every night and even had a good relationship with her mother and siblings. So this girl was just all around like a a good good great girl girl. yeah Yeah. didn't get into any trouble loved her mom like always got home on time Mm -hmm. even i think i read even if she did even if she was going to be out late she would call her mom and let Let her her know know. (laughs) like yeah you don't come by those (laughs) (laughs) oh i love it march 29th 1975 seemed like a normal day Yvonne had gone out earlier in the morning to get some last-minute things for their Easter celebration, including extra eggs for the family to decorate. Sharon had her own errand to attend to. She needed to pick up her Leo's Boys jacket at the Boys and Girls Club in order to get the jacket 
Sharon had to have sold a certain amount of raffle ticket books and she had reached her goal. She asked her mother if it would be okay to bring her four-year-old foster brother, Stephen, to which she agreed. Not only does this woman, Yvonne, have four kids, but she also took in a foster child. Yeah. As a this lady is mom. a saint. Oh my God. She really is. <sighs> the two set off to the club, and upon their arrival, Sharon found out that they did not have her size available. They gave her a receipt and told her to come back another time when hopefully they will get it in. So the two of them headed back home. That afternoon, the priors welcomed their reverend for a surprise visit. He stayed for a little while to celebrate Easter with the family and even gifted them chocolate turtles. Chocolate turtles. Mm Mm-hmm. After he left, the family sat down for dinner and shared stew that Yvonne made. She said the children weren't fond of the meal, but they would eat it anyway. During dinner, Sharon asked her mother if she could go to Marina's Pizzeria later to meet her friends and her boyfriend. Yvonne said it would be fine, so Sharon went to get ready. Sometime before 7 o'clock, Sharon's neighborhood friend came by to hang out for a bit while Sharon got ready. She, at first, couldn't decide what to wear. So she settled for one of her mom's sweaters and her favorite suede jacket. When she was ready, she said bye to her mother, who told her to be careful not to get the suede jacket wet in the rain. The girls then left the house around 7.10 p.m. The two had been friends since they were five, but went to different schools and did not share the same friend circles. So when Sharon was heading to the pizzeria, her friend went back home instead. Her friend reportedly had offered to walk with Sharon to the pizzeria, to which Sharon said no and that she would be fine to go there by herself because she knew the route well. She had been to the pizzeria many times before because it had become a teen hangout spot. And with that, Sharon began to walk by herself. Somewhere along her route, though, something went wrong. Her friends at Marina's pizzeria waited for her to arrive, but she never did. At first, they assumed she probably went to the hockey game with her boyfriend and some other guys in the friend group, but when they arrived at the pizzeria, Sharon was not with them. Later at home, Yvonne waited for Sharon to arrive home. Her curfew came and went, and there was no sign of her. Yvonne thought it was a bit strange, since Sharon would always either come home on time or at least call her to let her mother know that she was running late. She stayed up until 1.30 a.m. waiting for her daughter to come home, but she never did, and Yvonne grew very worried. Understandably so. Yeah. So Her daughter is always on ho- home on time, or at least mm-hmm. communicates to her that she won't be. Right. She's probably, like, stir-crazy wondering where she mm-hmm. is. Just, like, not able to go to bed, really, I mm-hmm. can imagine. <clears throat> The following morning was when she decided to call some of Sharon's friends. One of them, named Mary, alerted Yvonne of an unfortunate event that took place the night before. Mary said, quote, I don't mean to worry you, Mrs. Pryor, but a woman was attacked on Ash Avenue sometime after 7 p.m., end quote. The victim was a 23-year-old woman named Cheryl Roy, who had been threatened and grabbed by a man with a knife. 
Thankfully, a passerby saw the whole thing and scared the man off before he could hurt Cheryl. He was described as having blue eyes, a mustache, and a calm voice. He wore blue jeans, a dark blue ski jacket, and black shoes with pointed toes. What worried Yvonne was that the man reportedly fled in the direction of Sharon's path to the pizzeria, and it was the same time frame. Cheryl was brought into the station to try to identify her attacker, but she was so unsure of the appearance that she couldn't single anyone out. No one was charged for the attack. Mm. So it's kind of unfortunate that she just didn't really remember exactly what he looked like like she had a vague description of him but she just could not be sure so it was winter up there Mm -hmm. um i heard it gets like dark early um especially up north in canada especially so it was probably dark out like she's in Mm -hmm. fight or flight mode she probably like didn't think to like take down mentally what he looked like Mm-hmm. which sucks but right. how can you possibly like remember to do that or think to do that like in the midst of I'm, that situation i also assume it was pretty quick because um the passerby um i think it was a lady she kind of scared him off so he probably just like turned and ran mm-hmm. so it i'm guessing like it happened so fast within, so like, quick 30 seconds or something. Yeah. Like, it mm-hmm. couldn't have been that long. So a search began for Sharon then. In the days after her disappearance, so many members of the community aided in the search, including her friends and classmates, as well as law enforcement. Yvonne even went on TV to beg the community for help in finding her daughter, but there was still no signs of her. People at first believed Sharon must have run away from home. Her mother and family knew this was improbable, though, because Sharon had absolutely no reason to leave. And it's also unlike her. Mm -hmm. Yeah. She hadn't spoken to anyone about wanting to run away. And her mother stated, quote, I didn't think she was planning on running away from home because she left her school bus pass and money behind in her room. And all of her friends say that they never heard her talk about running away, end quote. But the prior family would never get the answers that they wanted. And on that fateful day of April 1st, when the news hit that her body had been found, their lives would never be the same. Again, it's just so sad. Yeah. I... I see why they, like, immediately were like, no, she wouldn't run away. Yeah, I agree. She genuinely, like, liked being around her family mm-hmm. and her siblings, especially. And there were just, no like, the signs. Just, like, the fact that she loved being a big sister. Like, yeah. why would she just leave all of that behind, all the effort that she's put in in her life? Exactly. And, like, school and activities and her family and all that stuff and like right before easter weekend too Mm -hmm. yeah i feel like when someone truly does run away there are going to be signs that they're Mm -hmm. planning on it there's going to be personal effects that they take with them Mm -hmm. there's going to be certain things that just point to them planning on it in this case i feel like it wasn't that Mm -mm. definitely not In the aftermath of discovering the body, authorities interviewed 38 people who were 
who were suspect to the case, but only six were actually detained and then later released due to lack of evidence. Among these six people were the the pizzeria manager, the beekeeper who discovered her body, and the co-owner of the apiary, Mm. as well as a few more. Mm -hmm. As time went on, leads quickly dried up and there was no new information that was helpful to the investigation. Sharon's case soon went cold, but her family did not give up. On April 4th, 1975, Sharon was laid to rest. Thirteen months would go by without any new leads on the case. So, like, for over a year, they just didn't know what to do. Mm -hmm. They just couldn't really find any suspects that actually were panning out connected other Mm -hmm. than, like, being in that area. Yeah. Which just isn't enough. Exactly, yeah. So... Yvonne believes Sharon likely didn't make it far from the house before being captured. This is because she had been told by a neighbor that they had been driving down the street Sharon would have been walking on to go to the pizzeria, but they didn't see her anywhere. Sharon was not physically tough either, so she most likely would have frozen up in the face of an attack, Mm. which I totally get because she's only 16. Yeah. She's probably not, like, she does sports and stuff, but she's still a young girl. So, Mm -hmm. like, a larger man, like they said, six feet, 200 pounds can easily overpower her. Yeah. Oh, man. And it's not something, like, today there's the whole, like, self-defense for women and Mm -hmm. more um, talk about that, more warnings going around. Mm-hmm. back then probably not so much right um, yeah not, not like no one was pre- no one's ever prepared for that so no i understand freezing up and like not knowing what to do or yeah, how to react i would do the same for sure it would just freak I'd like, me out i'd like to think that i could fight off somebody but a guy that big mm-hmm. there's no chance especially because she yeah. was so young too I think, like, I have a good sense of knowing, like, if there's a dangerous situation or Mm -hmm. something bad is about to happen. And I, like, try to get out of those situations Mm -hmm. as quickly as I can to avoid it. But I don't know how it would be, like, if somebody actually grabbed me or... Yeah. That reminds me of when I was going home. I told you about when I stopped at that gas station. (laughs) I Mm -hmm. ran in and I got a few snacks. And then these weirdos come up in their car freaked the hell out of me and I was just like speed walking to my car and I got in my car and I locked the door immediately but like my heart was racing because like you could tell that they didn't have the best intentions like yeah you just know Mm -hmm. yeah a former FBI profiler Greg McCreary had his own thoughts on Sharon's murder He believes that the attacker was most likely younger, maybe in his 20s, and probably lives in the area due to his obvious knowledge of the streets. He had to have known the area well since he knew where to go and dump a body. In fact, the dump site was probably chosen because the field wouldn't be used by the beekeeper until late spring. The killer probably thought her body wouldn't be found for weeks. McCreary also believes that this possibly was not his first time doing this. The man who attacked Cheryl Roy could very well be the same man who killed Sharon. Moreover, McCreary stated that when killers get into their 
hunting mindset, they are much more likely to attempt a second abduction because they are so willing in that state to risk more. So the likelihood that it was unrelated to Cheryl's attack is improbable. I can see that because like how Mm -hmm. can there be two similar attacks? I mean like nobody saw who grabbed Sharon or anything, Mm -hmm. but literally in like the same area. I think it was like a couple blocks away, maybe less. Okay. Um, And the same exact time frame. Like there's no way there were two guys doing this at the same time. It just lines up that it was the same guy. Mm -hmm. And then like we said, they have that like the adrenaline going to do Mm -hmm. it. Right. So, like, if one doesn't work out, they're probably, like, determined yeah. to get somebody. And the attacker probably just, like, ran it. Like, like they said, he they ran in the direction that Sharon was walking. Was going. To go to the pizzeria. So, he probably ran into her. Mm-hmm. Or maybe, like, ran, got in his car. And mm-hmm. then, like, saw her on the sidewalk and was like, it was oh, just I have a second chance. Like, this girl's straight alone. Up crime of opportunity right yeah the attacker was probably a sadist as he held sharon captive for days and probably inflicted pain on her for his own pleasure which is disgusting mccreary advised that the police should look for people who have minor domestic arrests or solicitation He probably wouldn't be a smooth talker if it were the same man who tried to attack Cheryl since he felt the need to threaten her life with a knife. Which makes sense to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. If he was a smooth talker, he may have like tried to pull a little trick on her. Like the flat tire murderer guy. Yeah. But since he like immediately just popped up with a knife, he probably isn't a smooth talker decent member of society like he probably wasn't an active member true probably didn't have many friends i'm guessing Mm -hmm. that's true so he also theorizes that the killer could be serial as there were many other unsolved cases in the same area with similar outcomes one of which was the case of tammy leakey there are many similarities between sharon's case and tammy's case On March 20th, 1981, Tammy had been visiting her grandmother in the Point, the same neighborhood where the Priors lived and where Sharon disappeared. She was sent to the store to get milk, but never returned. Tammy's mother, upon searching for Tammy, found her glasses on the sidewalk, which indicated that Mm. she may have been abducted. Her mother immediately called the police. Later that same evening, a man discovered Tammy's body in a similar state to Sharon's, when it was found. Her case remains unsolved. Other cases in the area are similar as well, which point to the possibility of a serial killer. Um, and I can totally see how yeah. that may be because I didn't, in- I haven't, we're not going to talk about the rest of them because because they're all just like same thing over and over again where like mm. these women are getting attacked or assaulted or mm-hmm. like it's just the same thing over and over again. So it's kind okay. of clear that somebody is either like a serial killer or they're just going on a rampage, like just going crazy. Oh, it's so crazy. Yeah. It's terrifying. In the year 2000, Yvonne requested that poli- 
that the police once again review the evidence collected in Sharon's case. Technology had advanced a bit, so she thought that maybe they could get some answers. A week after she made the request, the police responded by telling her that they had discarded the majority of the evidence from the case in 1995, so they could not review it. Ugh. What the I know. hell? <laughs> like, why? why are you throwing away evidence? It is literally an open case. That should yeah. be straight up illegal to yeah. do. It's horrible. So they lost like probably 75% of that. Oh, my God. This obviously. It's so frustrating. Oh, my (laughs) God. Yeah. This obviously devastated Yvonne, but she pressed on. She requested that they at least try to find the clothing items that were found at the scene of the murder. Luckily, they still had them. Thank God. Oh, my God. Yeah. The clothing was tested and foreign DNA was found, but nothing else could be done at the time. Yeah, so I guess, like, technology had advanced a little bit to the point mm. where they could, they could like, lift, lift it. foreign DNA or any DNA for that matter. I see. But they just couldn't, like, run it through any database for whatever Some, reason. Sometimes I've heard at, like, that point in time they needed larger samples of it too Mm -hmm. so maybe they just didn't get enough of it or whatever in 2004 police got a tip from someone saying they might know where sharon was being held captive they said they thought it was in a garage unit Mm. police swarmed the area and they ran tests to gather three dna samples but none of them were a match to sharon's or the murderers so the tip was discarded disregarded (laughs) discarded discredited (laughs) yeah either way pretty much so basically they went in to this garage and like it was believed by whoever submitted the tip that she was probably held there there. but no there was no evidence that she was ever there there was no there was no dna that matched the dna on the clothing items so um that'd be hard because it bogus i guess yeah and it was so far after or so long after 1975 Mm -hmm. right yeah like even if she was there what are the chances that there are still evidence that Mm -hmm. she was yeah i'm sure she was held somewhere but i don't know has that ever been found i wonder yeah i don't think it has it's kind of a mystery like what where she was she was in those between days. the time that she was abducted to the time that she was dumped at the <sighs> apiary so it's just like kind of up in the air mm. in 2010 an anonymous donor increased the reward for information that would solve sharon's case to ten thousand dollars and opened a dedicated <clears throat> phone line for tips which is good because mm-hmm. it like encouraged the community to keep keep this case Pressing alive. On, yeah. The passerby who saved Cheryl's life even hopped on board to try to help solve the murder by going to a hypnotist in hopes that it would coax new information about that day to come out. A few days after her session, police sent over photos of suspects in the case, and only one person stood out to her. Mm. 
It was a man by the name of William Patrick Fife, who was a Canadian serial killer guilty of five murders and who claimed to kill at least nine. Fife had told authorities, however, his first murder didn't happen until 1979. There was also no evidence to connect him to Sharon or her case. So again, the lead dried up. Mm. So it's just like time after time they're getting these like tips and leads. Yeah. And it's just like and they not keep really not leading to anything. Out. Yeah. And also the 70s, like we've said before, were very active when it comes to like serial oh killers my God. and yeah. crime. It was just like going on everywhere. Like yeah. obviously this guy was this guy was found guilty guilty of killing five people but he just like claimed that he killed as many as nine i hate that i hate that like they get (laughs) caught for them and then they're not like just build a fucking beans man like right they're like it's over the gig is up nine though but But i'm not gonna tell you about them right yeah i wonder if um i think he was in jail i think he Mm. I'm pretty sure he like served his time or something, but I'm not sure. Oh. Throughout the years, there have been many other suspects, but there hasn't been any definitive proof connecting any of them to the case. Many of them were speculation by amateur investigators. The Boys and Girls Club even pitched in to do their part in remembering Sharon by setting up a scholarship in her name and a website that would keep her memory alive. So again, like, all these people are doing, like, so much. Anything they can possibly do. Because mm-hmm. this girl was, like, such a good girl. Like, yeah. everybody loved Sharon. Everyone loved her. And she was involved in so many activities and stuff. I'm sure yeah. she knew a lot of people. This so. just all goes to show how much she was a part of her community. Right, yeah. At such a young age, too. Mm-hmm. And it's it's also kind of sad because some cases don't get that kind of attention. That's true. Like some people that go missing or whatever, they don't get a website. They don't mm-hmm. get a dedicated tip line or whatever. Exactly. Just because there's not, like, people don't talk about it forever. But luckily with hers, like, her family and her community never let law enforcement mm-hmm. forget about it. It's great. Throughout all this time, though, Yvonne never gave up on solving her daughter's case. Thank God. Mm-hmm. She continued to press law enforcement so that they would never forget Sharon's name. Whenever there was a possibility to try something else, she pushed for them to get involved in the case again, which we said this. I believe it was. I forget what case it was. I mean, it's a reoccurring theme throughout mm-hmm. um, true crime stories, but the People who give a hoot and a holler about these cases, those are the ones that they are going to focus on. Those mm-hmm. are the ones that they are going to keep working on. Right. Yeah. So so it's best to, like, bother them. Bother yeah, the just hell out of them. <laughs> no matter how stubborn. Oh, it was like... Angela. Angela Samota. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And her friend, years later, again, kept bothering them. Mm-hmm. So and still didn't get any answers from police, yeah. and then literally had to become a PI herself. Had to do it herself. Oh, yeah, <laughs> she's so oh. fine. I still <laughs> love that case. So I know, <laughs> for real. 
That opportunity came in 2003 when the men's shirt, Sharon's pants, and her underwear were all tested once again for DNA. This time, they were able to lift a partial profile from the shirt, but it was insufficient to make a comparison to the DNA profiles on Sharon's items of clothing. It wasn't until 2015 that they were able to lift a complete DNA profile from the shirt, which ultimately was a match to the profile left on Sharon's jeans and underwear. At that time, they ran the DNA through the Canadian database, but they did not get a hit. Two years later, a private lab in the U.S. ran the DNA through their system, and still no result was found. So still, like, they're continually Mm -hmm. years are trying and everything they do just is not working yeah it wasn't until 2022 that they tried again sergeant roscoe who was working on sharon's case at the time sent the clothing items as direct samples to the lab to once again be tested this time they finally got a hit It turns out the suspect's family had submitted their DNA to a genealogy website, which helped make the match. The last time, or no, the last name they got was Romine. No one with that last name was on the suspect list in this case. So Roscoe began the search for a Romine in Montreal around the time of Sharon's murder and found a potential suspect, Franklin Maywood Romine. Thank God. So finally. Thank God for genealogy websites. <laughs> I know. Who would have thought when like Ancestry came out and all these other ones that it would lead to this? I know, right? It's amazing, <laughs> it's crazy. honestly. Franklin was born in 1946 and had a vast criminal record. He was originally from West Virginia, where he spent a lot of his time in and out of jail. He even escaped jail twice. In February of 1974, a little over a year before Sharon's death, he broke into the home of a woman in Parkersburg. He assaulted the woman and then fled the scene. He was arrested shortly after, but released on a $2,500 bond. He then moved to Montreal, Canada to continue his crime spree. Canadian officials captured him in October of 1975. Canadian officials captured him in October of 1975 and handed him over to the FBI on his robbery and assault charges. He was then sent back to West Virginia where he pled guilty to a second degree assault charge in exchange for dropping the robbery charge. He was sentenced to five to 10 years in prison but got out on credit for time served. Once he was released, he moved back to Montreal, where he died of natural causes in 1982. His body was returned to West Virginia and buried in Pine Grove Cemetery. So, unfortunately, he died in 1982. Yeah. And we're in 2022 now. We just now got the match to this that guy. Is or crazy. just now have him as a suspect like a, an actual worthy suspect mm-hmm. <laughs> franklin's brothers did everything they could to help the investigation upon finding out about the dna match they willingly provided samples of their own dna to be compared to the profile from the men's shirt found at the crime scene 
It was concluded that it was 140 times more likely that it was Franklin's DNA on the shirt than any random person in the Caucasian population. One of his brothers even remarked that it was most likely Franklin who killed Sharon. He stated that Franklin had once tried to assault his brother's wife, resulting in the family not being too close with him anymore. Understandable. So it's just the fact that his own family was like, yep, it was probably him. It just, like, says a lot about this guy. Yeah, exactly. Sergeant Roscoe submitted a request for Franklin's body to be exhumed, and Putnam County complied and pushed the request through. The Romine brothers were opposed to this, however, because it went against their Pentecostal faith to exhume people from graves. Not only was it sacrilegious to them, but they also had dug their family's graves themselves, and in doing so made a spatial error which would make it extremely difficult to exhume Franklin without exhuming their mother as well. Roscoe went on to explain to the judge why it was so important that they needed to test the DNA and compare it to Franklin's. That's kind of crazy. I know, yeah. I thought it was too. That's why I I, included that little bit in because it's insane that I guess like I guess I'm assuming Franklin was buried first Mm. and then then their their mother died later maybe and maybe they like meant to dig a grave like right next to him but Mm. it was like so on top (laughs) yeah it ended up being on top so maybe that's why they were like oh no you can't exhume him without exhuming our mother oh I get why they didn't want to also because of their faith but Hmm. like this guy most likely murdered a child yeah like this has to be done like come on they we need to put it to bed sharing her family family. absolutely to like have actual answers for once Mm -hmm. franklin lived five miles from where the priors resided both the shoe print and the tire marks could be traced back to franklin he was a size eight and a half shoe and the tires that made the tracks were only used on 37 car models in 1975 Mm. one of which was a wrangler which franklin drove at the time A 22-year-old woman who was almost abducted around the same time and place as Sharon actually gave a description of her attacker that was strikingly similar to Franklin. She said he spoke English, not French, like most Mm. people in Montreal, which honestly gives it away right there. Mm -hmm. It was somebody from the United States or West Virginia. Yeah. He was in his late 20s, white, 6'2", and 200 pounds. 200 pounds with brown hair, a mustache, and a blue ski coat. This was also extremely similar to the description Cheryl gave of her attacker. Mm. It's like almost to the T. Yeah. The same thing. Um, And it also matches what the... It almost exactly matches what the DNA... uh, Not the DNA... The... um, the former FBI profiler. Oh, yes. Suggested. Exactly. Yeah, Which there's is, like, no doubt. Crazy. Mm-hmm. The most important piece of the puzzle was the DNA. The comparison between the Romine brothers' DNA and that of the profile from the men's shirt had many similarities. The final decision was that Franklin could be exhumed. Thank God, again. Mm-hmm. Yes. 
on May 2nd, 2003. <laughs> no, not 2003. <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> I have dyslexia, apparently. <laughs> On May 2nd, 2023, Longgill police de- – <laughs> I feel like I'm saying that wrong. I think that's like – it's a Long-Gil-Lil. French word. So I think mm. it's pronounced like something something really weird. But okay. in English, like there's not really a good way to say that. Longgill so. police. Longgill yeah. police. I think I would say like Longwill Long- or something Long-Wil. like that. I don't know. <laughs> On May second, twenty twenty three, Longwell Police, the FBI, West Virginia State Police, and the Putnam Sheriff's Department met at the Pine Grove Cemetery to exhume Franklin with the help of the local funeral home. Franklin's bones were transported back to Canada, where they were able to lift a full DNA profile for him. They then used this profile to compare it to the profile from the men's shirt. And it was then confirmed to be an exact match. So they finally solved the case. Finally. Thank <laughs> After goodness. 48 years, Sharon's oh case was solved. And it was all due to the prior family's active role in keeping the case alive and investigated. Mm-hmm. They never gave up throughout all those years. Maureen and Doreen, Sharon's uh, younger twin sisters, thanked the many people who helped them find the killer and solve their sister's murder. They stated, quote, You never came back to our house on Congregation Street that weekend, but you never, but you have never left our hearts, and you never will, end quote. Which is so, like, I'm so glad That's they got wrong. the oh answers, God, yeah. finally. Mm-hmm. And I think um, Yvonne is still alive. She's just really oh. old. I was wondering if she was still alive. Yeah, I think she was in the photos, but um, Maureen and Doreen were, like, mainly speaking for the family. Understandable. But thank God her mother Mm -hmm. was still alive for him to be finally caught, even if he's not alive anymore. Yeah. Jesus. Too long. (laughs) For real. 48 years. It's insane that they had to wait that long to finally get the answer. That's the case with a lot of these genealogy-tested, like, DNA cases that are getting mm-hmm. solved these days. They are old, old cases. Yeah. Which is amazing mm-hmm. that this is finally helping. Yeah. I just love it. It's just so good. hmm Our hearts go out to Sharon's family and friends. We're so glad that they got the closure they needed and Sharon can rest peacefully now. Mm-hmm. So, I don't even know why I had to say that. <laughs> we kind of just said it and talking about it, so we can always get that out. But. We just had to reaffirm it. Yes, exactly. But yeah, yeah this, this was a super interesting case to me. I yeah. had a lot of fun researching it and mm-hmm. like watching videos on it. Yeah, it's a very interesting um, case. I just knew when I saw it on Reddit, I was like, we have to do that one. That's it's crazy. just heart-wrenching. Just mm-hmm. thinking about, like, what her mother had to go through and oh my God, then wait yeah. that long. But thank God that he was finally caught, at least. Right. Well, not caught, I guess, but case closed. We figure out who did it. Right, yeah. They so. don't have to, like, question anymore mm-hmm. what happened to her. Yeah. It's just super sad of a story. Just all the details that were included about her mom finding the news or, like, reading the newspaper that morning. Mm -hmm. 
So I wonder if they'll try to link him to those other murders that were going know, on. Yeah. That'd be interesting. That's a to good look question. Into. We'll have to like follow up on it and see mm-hmm. if there's any. Yeah, because it literally just happened. So mm-hmm. maybe now they're in the process of figuring out some of those others in the area. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I Hopefully. bet some of them were him. Mm-hmm. I wonder if there's probably not any way they can confirm or deny, but I wonder if it is the same guy that tried to attack Cheryl. Mm-hmm. I wonder that too. Yeah. Mm. It's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, thank you guys. Thanks for so much for us. watching. <laughs> yes. If you thought this was as interesting as we did, be sure to share it with a friend or leave us a comment. Let us know yep. what you think about it. We but would love to hear back. Yes. Mm-hmm. And we will see you in the next episode next week. See you guys. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Weird and Wicked podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please drop a like and leave a review. And don't forget to subscribe and follow us on all of our socials so you know when the next episode is out. Oh my gosh. Gojo just fell. Oh. <laughs> Gojo, are you okay? You're oh. rolling around. <laughs> Come here, baby. From a very young age, Sharon can be described as having so many good qualities. She was well-liked, caring, and responsible. Responsible. (laughs) (laughs) Responsible. He has the zoomies. (laughs) What? Oh, he's cute. You really want to be on the camera today, <laughs> He does. He's usually just like <laughs> chilling in the background. Yeah. <laughs>